Section 8 of Roman History, the Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3, Caligula, A.D. 37-41. The tidings of the gloomy emperor's death were heard at Rome with universal joy. The senators and men of Mark began to breathe more freely after the reign of terror. The people who had suffered less but for whom little had been done in the way of shows and largesse, began to cry about the streets, Tiberius to the Tiber, and to talk of flinging his dishonoured body like carrion to the crows. All eyes turned with joy to the young Gaius, the fond regrets with which they thought of Germanicus, his father, the memory of Agrippina's cruel fate, and the piteous stories of her murdered children caused an outburst of general sympathy for the last surviving son. In early childhood he had been the soldier's darling. Carried as a baby to the camp upon the Rhine, he had been dressed in mimic uniform and called by the familiar name of Caligula, from the tiny boots he wore like the legionaries around him. The mutinous troops, who were deaf to the general's appeal, were shamed into submission when they saw their little nursling carried for safety from their camp. For some years little had been known of him. After Agrippina's fall he had been brought up in seclusion by his grandmother Antonia, and then summoned to Capri by the old emperor while still a youth. He showed at that time a marked power of self-restraint, betrayed no resentments or regrets, and baffled the spies who were sent to report his words. Yet Tiberius, who watched him narrowly, is said to have discerned the latent passions that were to break out one day in the license of absolute power. But still he advanced him to the rank of the pontificate, allowed him to be thought his probable successor, and named him in his will as co-heir with the young Tiberius his grandchild. Besides this, the prefect Macro was secretly won over to secure the support of the Praetorian troops, and together they waited for, and perhaps hastened, the death of the old man. No such support indeed seemed needed, for at Rome there was a popular movement in his favor. The people rushed into the Senate House with acclamations when he came, they showered endearing names upon him, the claims of his young cousin were ignored, and at the age of twenty-four, Caligula became the sole monarch of the Roman world. The young sovereign was welcomed with a general outburst of excitement, not only in the city which for long years had not seen its ruler, but even in the provinces there were signs everywhere of widespread joy. In three months, more than one hundred and sixty thousand victims fell in thanksgiving upon the altars, the young sovereign could scarcely be unmoved amid the general gladness. Senate, soldiers, people, all were lavish in their honors. The treasury was full of the hordes that had been gathering there for years. There was nothing yet to cross his will or cloud his joy. His first acts were in unison with the glad tone of public feeling, and did much to increase it. The exiles were brought back from the lonely islands where they pined, the works of the bold writers Labienus and the like were allowed once more to pass from hand to hand. The ardor of the informers cooled, and a deaf ear was turned to warning letters. The independence of the magistrates was reasserted, 
and the accounts of the imperial budget fully published. Some show was even made a while of restoring the elections to the popular vote, while a round of civic spectacles were arranged upon a scale of long disused magnificence. The bright hopes thus raised were all short-lived, the extravagant popularity which had greeted him at first, the dizzying sense of undisputed power, were enough to turn a stronger head. His nervous system had always been weak. Epileptic from his boyhood, he suffered also from constant sleeplessness, and even when he slept, his rest was broken with wild dreams. His health gave way soon after his accession, and the anxiety on all sides was so intense the prayers offered for his recovery so excessive that they seemed to have finally disturbed the balance of his reason. Henceforth his life is one strange medley of grandiose aims and incoherent fancies, relieved at times by lucid intervals of acute and mocking insight, but rendered horrible by a fiend's cruelty and a satyr's lust. In a short time Rome was startled by the news that its young emperor, claimed to be a god already. It was not enough for him to wait to be canonized like others after death. He towered already above the kings of the earth. The one thing wanting was to enjoy divine honors while he lived. To this end temples must rise at once to do him honor, priesthoods be established for his service, countless statues of the gods be brought from Greece, and take in exchange the likeness of his head for their own. The palace was extended to the forum, and the valley spanned with stately arches that the shrine of Castor and Pollux might serve as a sort of vestibule to his own house, and that he might take his seat, as by right, between the heavenly brothers and be the object of admiring worship. From a god something more is looked for than the works of man, and so he was always dreaming of great schemes. He threw a bridge across from Baiae to Puteoli, upwards of three miles in length, and marched along it in state to furnish a two-day's wonder to the world. With greater wisdom he wished to cut a canal through the Corinthian isthmus, and sent even to take measurements needed for the work. The heathen poets have often sung of the envy and jealousy of heaven, and the emperor for a like cause could brook no rival. His young cousin Tiberius must die to expiate the crime of being once put upon a level with him, his father-in-law, Salanus, and his grandmother, Antonia, paid the forfeit of their lives for having formed too low an estimate of his majesty. Indeed, any eminence might be dangerous near him. Bald himself, he could not pass a fine head of hair without the wish, and sometimes, too, the order that it should be shaved quite bare. He prided himself upon his eloquence, and two men nearly suffered for the reputation of their style. The first was Seneca, then much in vogue, who was saved only by a friend's suggestion that he was too far gone in a decline to live. The other, Domitius Affer, was a brilliant orator and notable informer. In vain had he foreseen his danger and tried to disarm jealousy by flattering words. He set up a statue to the emperor to note the fact that he was consul a second time at the age of twenty-seven, but this was taken ill as a reflection on the monarch's youth and unconstitutional procedure. Gaius, who prided himself on his fine style, came one day to the Senate with a long speech ready prepared against him. Affair was too wary to reply, 
but falling to the ground as if thunderstruck at eloquence so marvellous, only culled from memory the choicest passages of what he heard with comments on their beauties, saying that he feared the orator more than the master of the legions. The emperor, delighted at praises from so good a judge, looked on him henceforth with favour. His spleen was moved not only by living worth, but even by the glory of the dead. He threw down the statues of the famous men that graced the Campus Martius. He thought of sweeping from the public libraries the works of Virgil and Livy, but contented himself with harshly criticizing them. The titles even that called up the memory of illustrious deeds provoked his umbrage. The old families must put aside the surnames of the Republic, and the Pompeian race dropped the dangerous epithet of great. The gods, it seemed, were above moral laws, for the old fables told of their amours without disguise or shame. Gaius would be like Jupiter in this, indulge at once each roving fancy, and change his wives from day to day. Invited at one time to a noble Roman's marriage feast, he stopped the rite and himself claimed the bride, boasting that he acted like Augustus and the Romulus of old time. His lewdness spared no rank nor ties of blood, but of all he loved Caesonia best, who was famous only for her wantonness. He dressed her like an Amazon and made her ride to the reviews, and when she bore a child he recognized it for his own by the ferocity with which the infant seemed to scratch and claw everything she saw. The oracles of old from which men tried to learn the will of heaven were couched often in dark, mysterious terms, and in this spirit he delighted to perplex and to alarm. He summoned the senators from their beds at the dead of night, frightened them with strange sounds about them in the palace, then sung to them a while and let them go. When people clamored for a legal tariff of the new tolls and dues, he had one written out but in characters so small and so high-posted that no eyes could read it. His caprices often took a darker color. He heard that when he was once sick, rash men had vowed to give their lives or face the gladiators if he grew better, and with grim humor he obliged them to prove their loyalty even to the death. We may see by the description of an eyewitness how great was the terror caused by these fitful moods of ferocity and folly. At Alexandria, the emperor's claims to deity had been regarded as impious by the Jews, but readily acquiesced in by the Greeks, who caught eagerly at any plea to persecute their hated rivals and wreck the grudge of a long-standing feud. The synagogues were profaned with statues, the Jewish homes were pillaged without mercy, and complaints of disloyalty forwarded to Rome. The sufferers on their side sent an embassy to plead their cause, and at its head the learned Philo, who has left us an account to tell us how they fared. They were not received in state, in the presence of grave counsellors, but after long delay, the two deputations of the Alexandrians and Jews were allowed to wait upon the emperor while he was looking at some country houses near the Bay of Naples. The Jews came bowing to the ground before him, but despaired when they saw the look of sarcasm on his face and were accosted with the words, So you are the impious wretches who will not have me for a god, but worship one whose name you dare not mention. And to their horror he pronounced the awful name. 
Their enemies, overjoyed at this rebuff, showed their glee with words and looks of insult, and their spokesmen charged the Jews with wanton indifference to the emperor's health and safety. Not so, Lord Gaius, they protested loudly, for thrice we have sacrificed whole hecatombs in thy behalf. Maybe, was the reply, but ye sacrificed for me, and not to me. This second speech completed their dismay and left them all aghast with fear, but almost as he spoke he scampered off and went hurrying through the house, prying all about the rooms upstairs and down, cavilling at what he saw, and giving orders on his way, while the poor Jews had to follow in his train from place to place amid the mockery and ribald jests of those about them. At length, after some direction given, he turned and said in the same breath to them, Why do you not eat pork? They tried to answer calmly that national customs often varied. Some people, for example, would not touch the flesh of lambs. Quite right, too, he said, for it is poor tasteless stuff. Then the insults and the jibes went on again. Presently he asked a question about their claims to civil status, but cut them short in the long answer which they gave him, and set off at a run into the central hall to have some blinds of transparent stone drawn up against the sun. He came back in a quieter mood and asked what they had to say, but without waiting for the answer hurried off again to look at some paintings in a room close by. At last, says Philo, God in his mercy to us softened his hard heart, and he let us go alive, saying as he sent us off, After all, they are to be pitied more than blamed poor fools, who cannot believe I am a god. His devices to refill the treasury which his extravagance had emptied showed no lack of original resource, though his plans were not quite after the rules of financial science. He put up to auction all the heirlooms of the past that had been stored in the imperial household, and took an active part in the sale, pointed out the rare old pieces with the relish of a connoisseur, and gave the family pedigree of each. He made his courtiers push the prices up, and when one of them was sleepy, he took each motion of the nodding head for a higher bid, and had a few gladiators knocked down to him at the cost of millions. When the news came of his daughter's birth, he publicly bemoaned the costly burdens of paternity, and asked his loyal subjects for their doles to help him rear and portion the princess. He stood even at the entrance of his house on New Year's Day to receive, with his own hands, the presents showered on him by the crowd as they came to court. Oftentimes he did not stay to devise such far-fetched measures, but simply marked down wealthy men for confiscation, betook himself as far as Gaul in quest of plunder, and filled his coffers at the expense of the provincials. Even without such poor excuse, he showed meantime a cruelty that seemed like the mere wantonness of a distempered fancy, as when he invited men to see him open a new bridge in state, and had the machinery contrived to fling crowds into the water, or when he laughed as he sat between the consuls and told them that a single word from him would make their heads roll off their necks, or when to give his guests more zest for what they ate, he had the executioner ushered in to do his work before their eyes. One fiercer taste he seemed to lack, the love of war but suddenly reminded that recruits were wanted to make up the ranks of his Batavian bodyguard, he took a fancy to a campaign in Germany, perhaps in memory of his father's name. Preparations were made on a grand scale, and he started for the seat of war, 
hurrying sometimes in such hot haste that his guards could scarcely keep beside him, and then again lolling in lordly ease, called out the people from the country towns to sweep and water all the roads. As soon as he had reached the camp, he made a great parade of the discipline of earlier days, degraded general officers who were late in coming with their troops, and dismissed centurions from the service on trifling grounds or none at all. Little came of all this show. A princely refugee from Britain asked for shelter. The Rhine was crossed. A parody of a night attack was acted out, and imposing letters were written to the Senate to describe the submission of the Britons and the terror of the Germans. Then he hurried with his legions to the ocean, with all the pomp and circumstance of war, while none could guess the meaning of the march. At last, when they could go no further, he bade his soldiers pick up the shells that lay upon the shore and carry home their trophies, as if to show in strange burlesque the vanity of schemes of conquest. Before he left the camp, however, the wild fancy seized him to avenge the insult offered to his majesty in childhood, and he resolved to decimate the legions that had mutinied long years before. He had them even drawn up in close order and unarmed before him, but they suspected danger and confronted him so boldly that he feared to give the word and slunk away to Rome. On his return he seemed ashamed to celebrate the triumph for which he had made costly preparations, forbade the Senate to vote him any honors, but complained of them bitterly when they obeyed. Still his morbid fancy could not rest, and wild projects flitted through his brain. He would degrade Rome from her place among the cities, and make Alexandria, or even his birthplace, Antium, the capital of the world. But first he meditated a crowning exploit to usher in the change with fitting pomp. It was nothing less than the massacre of all the citizens of Mark. He kept two notebooks which he called his sword and dagger, and in them were the names of all the senators and knights whom he doomed to death. But the cup was full already, and his time was come, though he had only had three years of power to abuse. He had often outraged with mocking and foul words the patience of Cassius Chirea, a tribune of the guard. At last Chirea could bear no more, and after sounding other officers of rank who had been suspected of conspiracy already, and who knew their lives to be in danger, he resolved to strike at once. They took the emperor unawares in a narrow passage at the theatre, thrust him through and through with hasty blows, and left him pierced with thirty wounds upon the floor. End of section 8